And everyone else, y'all turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to finish this chapter this morning. Chapter 7 and 8, we've been there for a long while, and there are essentially just two long discourses in the temple courtyard that Jesus has been having with various participants. A pretty diverse group when you go back and look through it and see all who that he's been talking to and talking with. He's talked to his brothers, the Pharisees, feast attendees, false converts, a repentant adulterous woman, on and on. And it's given us, the readers, the opportunity to learn much about Jesus and his message. Now, there's two major statements, one in each chapter, about the gospel. And 738, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Two bold, clear, succinct gospel proclamations in those two chapters and these two long discourses in the same location. And there's been several repeated statements about Jesus that they keep asking, is this, is this guy the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Or, or is he from heaven? Or where is he from? We don't know where he's from. And he says that he's from heaven. And then his teaching has just been amazing. It's either made them marvel, it's made them frustrated, or it's made them humbled. And all of this is building towards this pinnacle, this, this scene that we're going to get to here at the end of this uh, in chapter 8 that John's been building us to. So our text this morning is the, is the precipice, the zenith of this whole moment, of this, this temple moment of chapter 7 and 8 of these two conversations in the same location and it fits right along with John's theme. The pinnacle of this scene just fits right along with his theme. Of course, John 20, 31. But these are written. These things I have written down, John saying as the author, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Three things. Jesus is God. Belief is salvation comes by his name. And that that's where life is. That salvation by faith alone. Now, our text this morning is also serves as a bend in the road towards the cross, a shift, a bend towards the cross. In, in 518, 71, 719 and 20, 725, 837 and 840, no less than six times has the conspiracy to kill Jesus been explicitly stated. Six times so far, and we're only eight chapters into the book. The, this is the conspiracy to kill Christ, to, to execute him. And it's one thing to conspire to commit murder. It's another thing entirely to attempt to commit murder. And we're going to see the latter this morning. The, the Jews, by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, we're going to know they're done planning. They're done conniving. It's time to act. We're going to get to that point. Whatever Jesus says in this paragraph compels them to attempt murder right there in the temple square. And it won't be the last time they try to do that in John's Gospel. So we're going to pick up the conversation midstream where we left it off. Jesus just told them their father is the devil and they hate his word. So conversation's not going too well. But that's where we've left them off uh, last time. And remember, these are people who said they believed back in verse 30. They said they said they believed. This text boils down to, our text, 48 through 59, 
the, the Jews demanding that Jesus identify himself, and then Jesus is going to comply. This is an, a, a, a conversation, a confrontation about identity. And we love stories about identity. The movies that are popular and kind of hang around for forever, like The Prince and the Pauper, uh, Freaky Friday, Identity Swaps. Those are interesting to us. Mistaken identity stories about somebody wrongly arrested, wrongly accused, those kinds of things. All of our superhero movies, they all have a secret identity. They have a hidden identity. The undercover boss type shows, you, have the, you, know, you hide your identity and you go somewhere else. Those are intriguing. They're interesting to us. One of the best stories I can think of about, along those lines had to do with Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you know who Francis Schaeffer was. He was extremely popular in the late 60s, 70s, and in the 80s. Uh, he was one of those guys who could just think so clearly about the Christian life and how it interacts with the world around him. And he had this place in Switzerland called Labrie, and all of these burned out, uh, totally confused former hippies would come and live there, this little compound that he had, uh, and they'd work, and then he would teach during the day, and they would kind of just deconstruct um, the lies they'd been told. And so, so he became a really... A, a, a reformed theologian, but also how do you think and live with a Christian worldview? How do we interact with this world? So he rises to really high heights of notoriety in a pre-social media world, writing books and speaking at conferences. And there's a story about him going to London to speak at this conference. I think it was with InterVarsity, the ministry InterVarsity. Uh, they're mostly just known now for printing books, but they used to be a ministry that did stuff with people. Uh, and they were having a conference, and Francis Schaeffer was going to come, and there was kind of this group there that kind of lived, these young single guys who they just kind of all crammed together in a loft apartment, and they lived there, and, uh, and they were just getting ready, and they were kind of serving at the conference venue to help it get ready. And there's this young guy there. He's pretty new, pretty new to the faith, pretty new to uh, the group. And when he's, he's there getting ready for the conference, some guy shows up and he's like, I'm here for the conference. Hey, me too. Hey, this is what we're doing. We're going and we're kind of working. We're setting up chairs and we're going to make sure things are squared away in the back. Do you need a place to stay, man? You can stay with us. And he's like, yeah, great. I'd love, I need a place to stay. So he goes up and it's just, you know, it's just like a, a typical, typical guy's house apartment. It's just like a hostel. It's just beds everywhere and, you know, disgusting and gross, but they don't care. They're all there. And so the new guy comes in and sleeps, and then they all get up and go to the conference the next day. And the new young guy with the, the guests that he invited, they come, and they're sitting, and they're ready on the front row. And they would introduce the speaker. The guy next to him gets up and walks up onto the stage. It was Francis Schaefer, the guy who was supposed to be the speaker at the conference. And this new guy's like, oh, I made you clean toilets with me. I made, I made you like set up chairs and do all this stuff. But it kind of speaks to his character that I had no idea what your identity was. But now that I know, I feel like I should have treated you a whole lot differently. Which, of course, Schaefer would have been like, no, you shouldn't have. That, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was meant to do. But the identity of this is when you, who, who you really are and the blinders come off. We're going to see that this morning with Jesus, particularly with this crowd who demands that you identify yourself and when he does, they're going to immediately try to murder him. So let's start off with first the wrong identification, verses 48 through 50. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is their retort to, remember, Jesus just finished saying, Your father is the devil and you hate my word. And so then they say, Well, aren't you a Samaritan and have a demon? So the, it's a lot of maturity boiling here. Oh, yeah? Well, you're demon-possessed half-breed. That's kind of what their insult is. 
He's a demonic and an inferior ethnicity. These are the people, remember, 17 verses earlier, who claim to believe in Jesus. It is entirely possible to be swept up in an emotional moment and claim to have committed to Christ, but yet still possess the ability in your own heart to slander and hate the one you said you believed in. So Jesus addresses that people like this are going to exist and you're going to know who they are. Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. This is happening to Jews. This was really in your heart, and now it's coming out. They're showing what their hearts is. They never believed. It was always fake. And they're so spiteful to say that Jesus is not only of an inferior class of humans, in their minds, the Samaritans, but he's also a puppet for demons. How spiteful they've gotten. Has this conversation devolved into just name-calling, mud-slinging, ad hominem attacks? I mean, what's the difference between them calling Jesus a, a Samaritan and a demoniac when he called them earlier sons of the devil? Is that kind of where the conversation is? Are those, com, com, are those uh, slurs equal? Or are they both even slurs? Not really. Because what Jesus said to them was true. They are of your, you are of your father, the devil. And you do hate my father's word, God's word. But what they're saying about Jesus is untrue. Not, not true in the least. Jesus wants them, when he was saying what he was saying, to repent and to believe and to be saved. They want Jesus to die and be gone from them for forever. So this is not ad hominem yelling back and forth and name calling each other. Not in the slightest. But Jesus does answer in verse 49. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I do, I do not have a demon, yet nothing about being a Samaritan. Why doesn't he address the Samaritan issue? I mean, how would it read, how would it come across if he said, well, I'm not a, I don't have a demon, and I'm not a Samaritan? Wouldn't that be kind of putting those people down, in a sense? Now, now they're saying it, the, the Jews are saying it with a twofold, the twofold insult. Not only are you some kind of racial mutt, you're a half-breed, but you're also a rejecter of true worship. That's, that's what they're saying. But to Jesus, to not even answer that, he's giving the Samaritans dignity. Jesus is making clear, this isn't an ethic or an ethnic thing. Your slur to me as being a different ethnicity is irrelevant. Because my problem is not, and nobody's problem is ethnicity. My, your problem is spiritual. That's what your background is. It would have sounded like he agreed with their ethnic prejudice if he had just said, I'm not a Samaritan either. Even though he isn't. He's not a Samaritan. He's a, truly a Jew of the tribe of Judah. Being a Samaritan doesn't make anyone further away from eternal life than anyone else. But being demon-possessed does. Being a Samaritan doesn't mean you can't voice God's truth. But being demon-possessed does. That's why he addresses that one and not the other, the demoniac accusation versus the Samaritan. But I honor my father. All he's been doing is honoring God, his father. And if they're looking for an identifying title, they, all they could say to Jesus is Yahweh honorer. That's all he is. That's all he's done. That's all he's been known for. That's all he's done his whole life, indisputably. But what this crowd has done, Jesus says, is dishonor him. They hate Jesus for honoring God. He's pointing out the logical insanity of their position for people who claim to be children of God. 
Do you realize all I've done is honor God? You claim to be of God, and yet you dishonor me? This doesn't make any sense. You guys are not in a position of logical consistency. Yet, verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. Jesus is saying in verse 49, I honor my Father, but I'm not doing it, verse 50, for my own glory. I'm not trying to get my own glory. There's somebody who does seek my glory, but it's not me. It's the one who's going to judge all of humanity. He says, don't get it twisted. I'm not seeking God's honor for my glory, that God can be glorified and I can be glorified right alongside of him. I can build up my own um, prestige by my fidelity, by my faithfulness, by my boldness for the one true God of the universe. That's not what he's saying. That's the habit of the Pharisees. They claim to live their lives in honor of God, but they really were living it in honor of themselves. Jesus addresses that in Matthew 6. One and following, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of that. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. They have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then down to verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is saying, I'm consistent. I'm not looking for my own praise by glorifying God. That's the Pharisees' motto. We're glorifying God to glorify ourselves. We say we're glorifying God, but really glorifying Ourselves. So Jesus is proving that by letting God do it in his own timing. There is one who seeks it, and he'll do it whenever he wants to. That's the wisdom that, his, that Jesus' apostles will pick up on in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 10, 17 and 18, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6, he wrote, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Jesus is saying, I'm letting the Father handle that. The Father handles that for me. He, if I will be commended, it will be by him and it will be in his timing. And that's what we're supposed to do because the Father is the judge, right? Verse 50, and he is the judge. And unless you're the judge, your evaluation of a person's guilt or innocence doesn't matter. Unless you're the boss, your opinion on the employee of the month doesn't matter. Unless you're the head coach, your assessment of the player's abilities doesn't matter. And unless you're the father, the first member of the triune God of the universe, your opinion as to who gets glory or not is irrelevant. So Jesus is just laying it at the father's feet. I'm not trying to glorify myself. He's left himself in the hands of God. We got to learn to do the same thing. This is how Spurgeon said it. He said, for my part, 
I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. I have dealt honestly before the living God. My brother, do the same. Now, that's not fatalism. That's not pride. I'm so right and you're so wrong. History will vindicate me. That's not it. it it's just humility and submission to God. That's what Jesus is exemplaring. Jesus isn't looking for praise and honor here and now. And neither should we. He only desires to be obedient to the Father while he treads the dirt. And so should we. That's what we should be looking for and striving for. This is how the Apostle Paul instructs us along these same lines. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the goal. This light momentary affliction. Paul's saying that as one who has been beaten and has been shipwrecked and has been starved and has been snake bit and has been whipped and stoned and anything else you can throw out at him. He's endured all of that for the gospel. And what does he call it? Light momentary affliction. Jesus is saying that I'm not going to vindicate myself. Now God will deal with that as one who's going to endure the worst pain, who's gone through anything that we could ever compare to. We set our eyes on that goal, not on the here and the now, because what's coming? An eternal weight of glory. The weight of glory that's eternal and it's beyond all comparison. We let God glorify us. God vindicate and vouch for us. We don't fight for it now, is what Jesus is saying to these people who are demanding that he fight. Isn't that what Jesus says to Pilate? If this were my kingdom or right now, my followers, my servants would be fighting, but they're not. So that's the wrong identification. You're a Samaritan and you are demon possessed. And Jesus says, I'm not stepping into that fray. That's not who I am. Now they're going to demand even harder. So they give the wrong identification. Now they're going to demand an identification in verses 51 through 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, says Jesus. This is the fourth time Jesus has plainly offered the gospel to this crowd, this, this temple gathering crowd in 7 and 8. In 7.38, 8.12, 8.24, and now 8.51, the fourth time he's offered the gospel to them and telling them about their total depravity, their deadness and sin, their subservience to their father, the devil. He keeps telling them, I'm the way out of that. As he describes how bad their situation is, how hopeless their situation is, and how sinful they are, he keeps telling them, but I'm the way out. I'm the rescue. I'm the salvation from that. He is life. He is freedom. He is the avenue to becoming sons and daughters of God. His message he delivers right here with such freshness. Whoever keeps my word. You just re-say that another way. Whoever obeys what I say. Salvation is an offer, but it's also a command. That's why we can look at this and not say that, well, Jesus is saying now we have to earn our salvation. That's not what, we're, that's not what he's saying at all. He has a plentiful bounty of other verses that would contradict trying to earn your salvation. So keeps my word or obeys what I say, that's speaking about the gospel command. It is an offer, but it's also a command. Acts 17.30, 
The Apostle Paul preaching says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's important for us to keep this in mind, that the gospel is an offer and a command. Because if it's just an offer, don't we get generous offers all the time? I mean, things that other people might love to have or love to go and do or love to be a part of that we refuse. I mean, have you ever refused something that was really great? Like, I mean, 50-yard line tickets. You ever refused a free trip to South Dakota to hunt some rare bird or something? We've gotten generous offers all the time, and we refuse them. And what happens when we refuse them? Does that person's wrath come down on us? That would be insane. Right? If they, I offered this to you and you refuse, oh, that's okay, there's no, no consequence. But when we refuse to obey orders or commands, now there is a penalty for that, right? So the gospel is both. And if we fail to recognize that, the gospel is an offer and a command, then we run the risk of painting Jesus as an impetuous child who says, I'm offering you to come and hang out with me and it's going to be really cool. And if you don't do it, my daddy is going to crush you. But that doesn't sound like what we want Jesus to sound like, correct? An impetuous rich kid who, if you won't come and play with me, my daddy's going to hurt you. If you won't take my free offer to come and do all my cool stuff, then my dad's going to crush you. That, that makes him sound like an impetuous rich child. But if the gospel is a command from an almighty God who created us and everything that we see and know, that now it's not that at all. Now Jesus is, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is how you get to the Father is through me. So we have to understand and keep both sides. It's an offer, but it's also a command. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's the keep my word, but we'll never see death. This is an unimaginable promise. Death is the enemy to every person. Everyone fears death. Our whole, we have an entire industrial economic complex designed to keep us from dying. We have cars that think for us, that won't let us change lanes unless we turn the blinker on, that slow us down before we get up too close. We have hospital complexes all around us Experts at keeping us from dying. We have age-defying facial cream so that you don't look like you're dying. We fear death. Everybody fears death. In, in one sense, we're very death-obsessed. We play video games where you kill zombies for nine hours straight. But in another sense, we're very death-averse. Nobody goes to funerals, and when I talk to funeral home directors, they're saying we're having to advertise for the first time in our lives. So we are very death averse. And Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. Now we understand that he's not talking about physical death. We all have to un undergo physical death. But for the Christian, for the one who keeps the word of Christ, it's a stingless death. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's got no power. All it is is crossing over. All it is is going home. All death can do is send you home for the Christian. So you'll never see death. The true horror of death comes to those who reject Christ and experience the total absence of God's love and grace. And that's what it is to be a Christian, to experience the fullness 
of God's love and grace. That's what Revelation 20 and 21 calls the second death. That's the real death. The removal of God's love and grace and only his presence in wrath and justice. That's why Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't be afraid of other people with bigger guns than you. Instead, bow the knee and have reverence for and fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Because if you fear him, then he doesn't put you in hell. He brings you to himself forever, where there is no death and there is no pain. So Jesus is offering these people for the fourth time freedom from this dreadful fate. This is Jesus' inscrutable love. He is offering people the gospel hope of eternal life who just called him a demon-possessed half-breed and who just said they believed in him and then minutes later said, we want to kill you. What kind of inscrutable love is that? To say that in midstream, he just keeps talking. He's telling them they can avoid eternally the pains of real death. And that truth is found in his word. How would you respond to this if you were there? How did you respond to this if you have accepted Christ? If you have it, how are you responding to it right now? This offer to never see death. I hope you're responding to it better than the Jews do in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Offer the gospel, offer eternal life, offer the freedom from death, and the, ac and the accusation becomes, well, now we're, now we're convinced you definitely are demon-possessed. Now we know your words are from the underworld. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. This is total disgust and revulsion that they respond with. They double down on calling him demon-possessed, and then he offers them justification, redemption, reconciliation with God, and they shout back, you're an agent of the devil. That's their response. And what's their backup for their response? Our heroes, our national heroes, Abraham and the prophets, they all died, and you think that you can make us avoid death? The greatest of us have avoided death. The best way, I think, to illustrate this, we don't really venerate our national heroes much anymore, or, or, or you know, our, and our country has no value for people who do the, the godly work of like missions. Who do we venerate? Athletes and entertainers. All right, so let's go with that. 1961, something really important happens. Some of you maybe were born then. Uh, something else happened that was a massive. There's a guy named Roger Maris, and he plays for the New York Yankees. And he's, gonna, he's on pace to break Babe Ruth's home run record. Got to hit 61 home runs in the regular season. And he's just a Midwest kid who got traded from some nowhere team to come to New York, the big granddaddy of all teams, and the fans hate him. His own fans hate him. Why? Because you're not New York. Babe Ruth was awesome. He drank all the time, and he could eat like 50 hot dogs a day, and he was cool, and he hit a million home runs. He was us. You're not of us. You're not like us. Who do you think you are? I mean, that was the heat coming to Roger Maris in 61 from the Yankees fans. Their team is winning, and they hate him because he's hitting home runs. I mean, he gets so stressed out, his hair starts falling out. But he keeps hitting home runs. And they, they, I mean, they're, they, they sent death threats to him, the guy on their own team, and they threatened even to kidnap his kids. 
because who do you think you are coming after our hero, George Herman Ruth's all-time home run record? That's insane. I mean, for a game, that's totally ridiculous. But that's the feeling, this mob mentality. Who do you think you are? You're not better than the best of us. And the best of us is Abraham and the prophets. Who do you think you are? And notice, they didn't misunderstand him. They recite his words right back to him. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. They, they heard the message. and It's the words that they're disgusted by. No comment on his delivery or his personality or his looks or anything. They're choking on the very words of life. They heard him and they hate it. That's it. They hate him for what he says, not what he does or not how he presents himself, not how he looks. They hate him for his actual words. They heard him and they repeated him right back to him. Are you greater, verse 53, than our father Abraham who died? and the prophets died, who do you make yourself out to be? Now, there it is. Identify yourself plainly. This is what the conversations in chapter 7 and 8 have been building up to. They've speculated amongst themselves. They've heard him speak. They've dialogued with him. They, they vacillated between believing and not believing, between thinking he's awesome and then wanting to kill him. They've experienced all of this, and now it all comes to a head. Who do you make yourself out to be? Not who are you, not who, even who do you think you are. That's the, kind of the sentiment. Who do you think you are? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you believe that you are? Identify yourself. Show us your papers. That's what they're asking for. This is what everything boils down to. And when I say everything, I mean everything. All of life, all of the scriptures, all of the church's purpose, down to the confession that Jesus put to his disciples in Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? That's the one question that all people in all places and all times are going to have to have an answer to. And that the answer to that question determines where you spend eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? And that's what these angry unbelievers have put to Jesus. Who do you make yourself out to be? This identity, they demand an answer. Now, Jesus is going to present some advocates for his identification in a very winsome way in verses 54 to 56. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Instead of answering their question directly immediately, he will, but instead of doing that immediately, he appeals to an advocate, someone who can vouch for him, his Father. Someone they claim to know, God the Father. Jesus isn't seeking self-verification, though he could. He is God. But he's not seeking self-verification. He's going about it, validation in any way that any Christian would. Like John 5.31 says, Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I'm going to have somebody else vouch for me. And he's already done this several times, but he's doing it again in good faith here and just winsome conversation to do this. But it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do us as people any good to claim ourselves to be authentic if we're not. 
what does it matter if I think? I heard uh, the other day I was reading some church history stuff and found out that there was a guy who started a university and then gave himself an honorary doctorate and called himself doctor from that point on. <laughs> I was like, wow, it's pretty bold, brother. Like what? Like what? I started a university just to give myself an honorary doctorate. Guess what? That doesn't count. That's not a real doctorate. You can't just call yourself that. So Jesus is saying that the only voice of approval that matters is God's voice. And he's the one who glorifies me. I, if I glorify myself, it doesn't do me any good, he says, even though he could because he is God. But it's my father who glorifies me, my father who vindicates me. And you guys say that you know him. But verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. The God who's going to glorify me and identify me is the one that you say that you know, but you don't. And if Jesus were to feign some kind of false humility or, or claim anything less than perfect knowledge of God, it would make him a liar. That's what he says. It would be li- I'd be a liar like you are. Just like their liars were saying they know God in any real way. Jesus has to speak for God. He's compelled to do so. John Calvin wrote about this. He said, Christ testifies that the, that the necessity of his office constrains him to speak because silence would be a treacherous denial of the truth. I have to say these things. Otherwise, I'm treacherously denying the truth. And the truth is that I am who I say I am. He's going to get to that. He's not appealing to himself for identification. He's appealing to God Almighty. In this realm, with you people, God vouching for me is everything. That's what identifies myself. That's what, that's what any kind of glory that comes to me will matter, is if God speaks for me in this realm, in the same way that my identification at the Dallas Cowboys locker room was 100% dependent upon my wife's cousin Tanner. Because when I got to go there, he was that equipment manager for the Dallas Cowboys. And I got to go in the back door. And there's like Hall of Famers walking down the, the hallway. And we're walking by the scouting offices. And we're, we're not doing what the tour guides do. I'm going back and I'm seeing Ezekiel Elliott's dirty jersey. And then I took the, there's one appropriate place to take a selfie. There's one. It's at the Dallas Cowboys locker room when you have on a real authentic helmet. And I did it. I took a selfie. That's the only one I've ever taken in my whole life. But I took it of myself right there. But wandering around in those hallways by myself did me no good. And if I said, you guys don't know this, but I was a back-to-back first-round playoff loss quarterback in Texas private school football, so I know what I'm talking about. I deserve to be here. They would be like, no, you don't. Get out. (laughs) But if I say, oh, I'm with Tanner. Tanner's vouching for me. Then, okay, yeah, you're good to go. Tanner can, if I'm going in there and taking hats and shirts off of the racks, then that's called stealing. But if Tanner gives them to me, which he did, and I have them, and you can't have them, uh, then it's okay, because he vouches for me. That's what, that's what Jesus is appealing to. The guy who has the real authority in this realm, he speaks for me. And how can you tell that Jesus knows the Father? What does he say in these verses? But I do know him, and I keep his word. He keeps the Father's word. That's how you know that he knows him. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus has said that before. Sonship is manifested by obedience. You obey your dad. You come to your dad's voice. And the converse is true. You don't obey somebody else's dad. You don't come to somebody else's dad's 
voice. Titus 1.16 describes these people. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And now it's going to tighten down further. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. God vouches for me, and guess what, everyone listening at the temple, all of you Jewish people from the tribes of Judah and all the other 11, your father Abraham also identifies me, also verifies me. Now, this verse is, if you just read it and think about it, you're like, what? Uh, what? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, which one do you think angered them more? God vouching for you or Abraham vouching for you? Abraham vouching for you and then saying, Abraham saw me. See, what these people did not understand was the joy in the heart of Abraham for the kingdom of Christ. They did, they did not understand that, though they knew the content of the Old Testament, that there was nothing that Abraham valued more highly than God's promise being fulfilled. He desired to see that day the one who would crush the head of the serpent that was going to come from his own body and that he knew was going to come from Isaac's own family. He longed to see that day. He desired the day of Christ more than anything else. We know that from Hebrews 11, which we'll read from here in just a minute. But that's the chasm, the chasm of distance between these descendants of Abraham and Abraham himself. The desire to see the day of the coming one, the promise fulfilled. Now, let's not miss the obvious quandary here. Abraham dies roughly 2,000, probably maybe most specifically 1,850 years before this day that Jesus is walking around on earth. How did Abraham see Jesus? He says, he saw it and was glad. He saw my day and was glad. How did he see it? Well, thankfully, we've been given a whole Bible and Hebrews eleven thirteen says, These all died in faith, Abraham and, and following, his family specifically, not having received the things promised. They didn't get the fulfillment of the promise in their lifetime. But having seen them, there it is, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It's through the eye of faith that Abraham sees and saw Jesus' day. Abraham knew, I'm not the most important person in the promise of God. And he knew, Isaac's not the most important person in the promise of God. But I also know that God is going to bring that one through this son of mine. That's what makes that moment in Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah such a huge deal. You're going to kill the one that you have all your hope in? That the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and bring at the end of all evil and the presence of all good? In the promise of God, you're going to kill him, Isaac? Plunge the knife into your own son? That's Abraham's big fear. But Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was able to do it because he knew God would keep his promise and he would resurrect Isaac from the dead if that's what it took. That's the moment. That's Abraham's joy. He was joyfully looking for one to come after him to fulfill those promises. So then, the rejection. So Jesus identified himself. I am the one that God has sent, and I am the one that Abraham looked forward to. That's my identity. And then they're going to reject it wholeheartedly in verses 57 through 59. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? 
Now, these people have been pretty dense, but they know how to do math, right? 1,800 years ago, and you're not even 50. How have you seen him? You have claimed to be present with Abraham. Abraham laid eyes on you. You're not yet 50, and we're being generous by rounding up because you're actually just barely over 30. Or maybe, maybe mid-30, 32, 33. So they, they understand, and they get it. And now here comes verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now hear this. This verse is the eye of the hurricane. You know, the eye of the hurricane is where there's, there's no wind. It's swirling in kind of a, uh, a, uh, a saw, like circular saw type pattern. And in the middle, there's no wind. And it's kind of this eerie calm when the hurricane is moving through, when the eye comes over you, because all of the tumult, all of the whipping winds and raging waters, crashing debris, it all just stops. And now it's just quiet. And you can hear everything. This eerie quiet just blankets the ground. You know the other side of that hurricane is coming, but you're in the quiet right now. Jesus just answered their question from back in verse 53, who do you say that you are? And he said unequivocally, I am God. Now that, that, that moment, that bluntness of the moment would be like the eye of the hurricane in this moment. He claimed not only to have existed before Abraham, he claims to have always existed our Bibles tell us that, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We understand that. But what Jesus just did, he claimed the sacred covenantal name of God by saying, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. The Greek is ego, a me. That's where we get the word Yahweh or Jehovah, however it's translated from. And it comes from God when he spoke to Moses from the bush in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now that verse always kind of confused me as a kid. That, like, I don't know a lot, but that's not great grammar. <laughs> I am has sent you? Or I am who I am? Is that Popeye? Hey, deep cut. A lot of people don't know that cartoon anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, read the room. I am has sent me to you. Jesus claiming that is what God claimed to, to and the people knew that. You're claiming eternality. This wasn't merely even eternality. It was a, wasn't merely even a claim to be sent by God like Moses claimed. Moses was just saying, hey, the I am sent me. Jesus is saying, I am the I am. I, I am that. He's claiming to be the same God who spoke to Moses from the bush, who led the people through the wilderness, who wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on the stone tablets, 
That's who he's claiming to be. He didn't say before Abraham, I was. He said, I am perpetually in the present tense. And only God can do that. Because you must be outside of time in order to be able to do that. Who possesses the power of being. He's dependent upon nothing for his existence. We are dependent upon so many things for our existence. If we lose invisible oxygen, we die. If we lose food and fuel for our bodies, we die. If it gets too hot, we die. If it gets too cold, we die. We're dependent upon everything. Ultimately, God, for our existence, God depends upon nothing. He exists all on his own. He has the power to be all on his own. And Jesus just said, that's what I am. The Jews wouldn't even say that name out loud. That's why we don't really know if it's pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. Probably Yahweh, but... Yeah, there's still a good case for Jehovah. We don't know because nobody will say it who actually speaks that language. And they wouldn't even, sometimes they wouldn't even write it. They were so afraid of misusing it or profaning it, which is probably not the right way to think about it because God said, call me this. And if your loved one said, call me this, and you're like, nah, I'm not going to call you that. You're too special. I'm just going to call you you. There'd be a little bit of distance there, but at least it's a reverence. But Jesus is saying, not just I'm from heaven, not just I'm God's servant or I'm God's son or I'm God's messenger. He, I am God himself. That's what Jesus said. And that eerie quiet of the eye of the hurricane, you could just see it drop. And now the other side of that wall of hurricane is coming. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. No discussion. No scoffing rage. No, come again, say that again. Just immediate attempted murder. No more conspiring. No more court officials sent to arrest him. No more debating. Just kill on sight. That's what it's become. And to be fair, if Jesus really was a mere man, then what they were doing was correct. Leviticus 24, 16 says, Whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So it was a little out of order because they didn't have a court or a trial. But they knew the Old Testament law and they knew what Jesus just said. And if he is a mere man, they're, what they're doing was correct. But he wasn't. He's saying exactly what's true. And the path towards the cross has now bent far more sharply and has declined far more drastically. We are rolling downhill to Golgotha. It's no longer a feigned secret that they want to kill him. What do you mean we want to kill you? Remember they said that back in chapter 7? Now it's like, no, we want to kill you. And everybody knows it. And they've already tried to do it themselves. Why? Why do they want to kill him? Because he is God and he told them that. That's why they want to kill him. The deity of Christ is a cardinal doctrine of the church. And too often we overlook it. I don't think sometimes we feel the weight of it. I know I'm guilty of that. Too often, the, the truth of God and who Jesus is rests too lightly on our hearts and our minds. Jesus, claiming to be God, got him crucified. That's the tipping point. Holding to that truth has gotten countless Christians martyred throughout church history. Why? Because if Jesus is God, then we're compelled to do what he says. And what he says to do is radical and despicable to the unbelieving world in every location and in every generation. If Jesus is just a prophet or a teacher, then nobody cares. 
The world is fine with you having your gurus and your life coaches. Nobody's being martyred for following the advice of Oprah or Tony Robbins or Ellen DeGeneres. And if Jesus is just a sage guiding people in wise living, then he's no more of a threat to the kingdom of darkness than Confucius. But if he is God, then that means his followers reject every other teaching. That means that he was present and active on all of history. That means he's the ruler over everyone, saved or lost. That means his people cannot bow to Caesar or Stalin or Xi Jinping. Because if he is God, we can't bow to anyone else. And if he is God, that means he's the author of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's been present in every era. That means he was there and active during the torching of Sodom and Gomorrah. That means he was there and present and active in the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. That means he gave the law and the gospel. That means he granted the barren womb of Hannah a child and also executed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. Jesus claiming and truly being God is why the response to him is always so black and white. But too often... His church doesn't want him to be known as fully God. Take, for example, because if he is God, and that means he wrote in the Old Testament that homosexuality is an abomination, unnatural abomination. And that means he also wrote that in Romans. But if he's not God, then we can say he never addressed it because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus doesn't specifically call homosexuality a sin. But if he is God, then he did say all of those things. The deity of Christ is one of those doctrines that if we lose it, we lose the faith entirely. To have Christ who is not God is to have a faith that cannot save. If Jesus is not God, then all we have is ancient wisdom from a dead martyr. And no one in the history of the planet has ever been saved by wise words from a nice guy. We need a savior who is God incarnate. And the short-fused, murderous rage of these Jews in John 8, 59, you know what it should do to us? It should fill us with a joy and a sigh of relief. You know why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. And they wanted to kill him for what we worship him for. They got it and they hated it. We got it and we love it. And we're thankful for it. Their response forms a stark contrast with the Samaritan woman at the well, does it not? Didn't she say the same thing? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's just another way to say Israel, the patriarchs. And they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? The answer to both of those was yes. And then how does the Samaritan woman respond? <laughs> Unbelievable. She runs throughout the whole town and the whole town comes to the well and they all get converted. But when Jesus responds in the exact same way to these people with the same, same question and same answer, what do they do? We're going to murder you on the spot. Same answer, same question, different response. The firsthand eyewitnesses heard and understood what he said, and he said he was God. That should fill us with joy and relief that we're not being duped by some sect or branch off or spinoff of Judaism. He really is God. We live as those born again and destined for blissful rest in the presence of the Almighty because Jesus, as God, took upon himself the form of a bondservant and was obedient to the Father all the way to the point of death on the cross. 
That's why we have the confidence and the hope that we have. And we live eternally, not someday, now. That eternal life comes now, not later. So here's what I want to do in encouraging you to ponder Jesus' deity this week. We don't do that often enough. I know I don't do that often enough. This week was all of that for me. So I want to encourage you, sit and meditate on what it means for Jesus to truly be God. Your Savior is God. Not some guy who really understood God. Not some guy who was so captivating how he spoke about God. He is God. He came and died for us. He laid aside his deity and even saying that, we got to caveat it a little bit because he didn't turn it off all the way. And he can't separate himself from it, so it just blows our minds. But for 33 years, he's not what he really is, visibly. Why? And he endured that. Why? Because of, in Paul's word, of the great love with which he loved us. There's no other motivation that his love for us and saving us in that way brings him glory. That's why his love is so great. And that's why we worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, as truly God of truly God, very God of very God, to stand there for who knows how long you were talking to them for those two discourses, those two days in a row in in John 7 and 8, and to say what you know was true And you know they were going to hate you. You know it was going to flip the switch from contention to murder. And you said it anyway. Because it was true. And you were willing to endure the cost of the truth. Not because of anything, but because of your glory for yourself and your love for us. We ask ask your forgiveness for our embarrassment. That when those moments come... For us to stand for you, to, to hold you up as, as God, that we, we, we caveat or we spin or we, we mumble, help us to speak clearly like you did before Abraham was, I am. That there couldn't be anything more loving than explaining that to them. And we see the contrast that these people were so hardened that they hated you for it. But you gave the same answer to that woman who was a Samaritan that they slandered you to be. She heard it and rejoiced and was saved, and you used that woman to save the whole city. Let us have that kind of confidence. Lord, so often we think that we're just going to get the, uh, the rage and the hatred that, that you got in, in John 8 instead of the, the repentance and faith, joy, and celebration of John 4. Help us to keep all of these things in balance in our minds and know that you are calling a people to yourself and that you are faithful to fulfill your promise. And Abraham knew that and he died in faith, seeing through the eye of faith what it would be like when you were here. Give us that kind of faith. We we pray like the disciples in that weary moment. Increase our faith because we know we need it. And we can't do it on our own. We can't increase our faith on our own. So we ask you to do it for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.